It is really good to see all of y'all. Um, for those of you I haven't met yet, my name is Brian. I am the lead pastor here at the Summit Church. Um, we have another pastor, Andy, who is actually on his honeymoon today. He gets back tomorrow. Many of you were at his wedding last week, which was a lot of fun. Um, this has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about, but as I was thinking about our church's legacy, I thought for sure one of the things we will be remembered for is being a church that is composed of some of the best dancers in the city of Denver. Um, you guys can get down, okay? I, don't have, that, that, I have no clever point with that. I just wanted to say that. I'm so impressed. Okay, legacy. Here's the idea. The idea is that we talked about last week that you will leave a legacy. It's not a matter of if you'll leave a legacy. You will in some meaningful way, impact the people who are closest to you. It's not if, it's a matter of when, and it's what kind of long-term lasting impact you will leave on the most important people in your life. Your friends, your coworkers, your family, your children. You will make a lasting impact, and it's a matter, not a matter of if, but a matter of what kind. That's what we talked about last week. Now tonight, as we jump back and we start from the beginning of 1 Timothy, what we are going to see is the second part of our tagline. Even if you look at the slide there, it says legacy, advancing and protecting the mission. Advancing and protecting the mission. Now, the reason we went with this idea of advancing and protecting the mission is because here's, here's what the Bible's gonna teach us. The Bible isn't just a book that tells us that we need to think big picture about our lives, that we need to be thinking about what sort of legacy we're gonna leave in this city. But also, the Bible is a book that tells us, unless we think critically, unless we're forward-thinking about advancing and protecting the most important areas of our lives, we will fail in those areas. We will fail. And, and, and the thing is, it's counterintuitive, because you assume, and I assume, the most important areas of our lives will take care of themselves. Let me explain, okay? For example, on your wedding day, if you've ever been married, if you are married, or if you're planning to get married, the reality is when you think of your wedding day, you never think, you know what, I'm going to be part of that 50% statistic of United States citizens who get divorced, right? Nobody thinks that way when, when their spouse is walking down the aisle, they don't think about their wife, and they don't look at their, their wife with their dad saying, you know what, like her and I, we're going to go four or five years, we're going to want to kill each other, we're going to sleep in separate beds, we're going to fight over who gets the dog, we're going to move out, and we're going to split and go ways. None of you think that way. When you got married or if you got, you just sort of assume that it's going to take care of itself. But here's what I've learned. I've learned that in my own marriage, I've been married for over four years. If I'm not thinking unbelievably forward in my marriage, if I'm not thinking about advancing and protecting my marriage, then I will care about totally insignificant things like Troy Tulowitzki's on base percentage. And I won't care about loving and sacrificing and serving my wife. That's just, just the way I'm naturally, naturally wired. Same thing if you've ever had a job. None of you go into your job thinking, you know what, I can't wait till, I can't wait till I'm deemed so incompetent and so lazy that I'll get fired. None of you think that way. When you think, a lot of you have just started jobs, and when you think about going into your job, you think, like, I'm either going to be here long term or I'm going to leave on my terms, right? Like maybe I'll advance, maybe, maybe I'll just go and take a better job somewhere else. But you know this, if you've ever had a job long term, while you may be very excited on the front end, right? You may be like refilling the, the, the uh, coffee pot at the kitchen, in the kitchen when it's empty. Before long, you become that person who the, mo the thing you're thinking forward about is how you can get the least amount of work done without getting fired. And before you know it, I mean, a lot of times nobody plans to get fired, but in the end, what happens? People get fired, why? Because you've been apathetic, because your skills have declined, and why should you be surprised when your boss comes to you and tells you that you can't work here anymore? 
The reality is, is when we think about the most important areas of our lives, when we think about raising kids, when we think about having a wife, when we think about being a good coworker, when we think about being a good neighbor, we assume that those things will take care of themselves very, very naturally. But the reality is, is you know and I know that when we think critically about our lives, when we observe other people's lives, we know that they don't take, na- they don't take care of themselves naturally. And what the Bible is challenging us to do is to think about the most important areas of our lives and recognize our responsibility to advance and to protect them. Now, this doesn't just apply for our jobs. It doesn't just apply for our families or marriages or anything like that. But it also applies corporately for the church. It applies corporately for the church. The responsibility of our church is to advance and to protect the mission of God. And the reality is, is a lot of you you have an amazing emotional investment in this church. You love this church. You believe in this church. Most of you are members of this church. Some of you are checking out this church, seeing if this is the place for you. Some of you, this is your very first time. But, but many of you have bought in. You've given unbelievable sacrifice for the mission of this church. And when you think about this church, you don't think that there's a possibility that one day we could be that church that has to split because we get into so many arguments with one another. You don't think, hey, this will be the church that has to shut its doors because people aren't giving and you, you just run out of money. Nobody thinks, hey, this is going to be the church where heresy is taught from the stage. You just sort of assume that's not going to happen. But if, if marriages fail when we don't think about advancing and protecting them. If families fail and we don't think about advancing and protecting them, we would be fools to think that our church won't fail either. And so as we look at First and Second Timothy, as we look at this concept of legacy, what we're going to see is Paul challenging us to think not just about advancing and protecting the most important areas of our individual lives, but also advancing and protecting the most important areas of our church's life as well. And tonight, Tonight, what Paul is going to start with in this letter to Timothy is the responsibility for the church and for you as individuals, no matter what you believe about God, your responsibility to advance and protect good theology, okay? Advancing and protecting sound doctrine. Let me break it down even simpler. Advancing and protecting, speaking correctly about who God is, okay? Very simple. That's our responsibility. Our responsibility as a church, if we're going to leave a lasting legacy in this city, and if you're going to leave a lasting in, in legacy as an individual, is to advance and to protect good theology. Now look, look at the text, 1 Timothy chapter 1. It starts with Paul. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. So last week we looked at 1 Timothy 3. They kind of gave the overall big picture idea of what this book was about, leaving a legacy. And now we jump back to the beginning and Paul's just starting the letter. He's starting it the way anybody else would start a letter. He's saying, Paul to Timothy. Paul, my authority is by Jesus to Timothy, my son in the ministry. And as we talked about last week, Timothy was one of Paul's best friends. He probably led, Paul probably led Timothy to follow Jesus and they partnered together to start churches in major urban centers all over the modern world. Verse three, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach different doctrine. Now, here we get the main idea of why Timothy is in Ephesus. Now, for those of you who were with us in the movement series that Drew just mentioned, you'll remember that Ephesus was a major urban center, major influence, one of the most influential 
culture-shaping urban centers in the world at the time. And as the gospel movement spread, as people decided to repent and follow Jesus, the movement spread to Ephesus, this very, very influential city. And if you remember Ephesus, Ephesus was that city that its primary source of income, its, the way it generated most of its revenue was by, by producing idols, by making little statues of idols. And, and some of the business owners got together, some of the guys who produced these idols, they got together and they talked about this. And as the gospel was spreading there, and as people were turning away from idols and starting to follow Jesus, they got together and they said to themselves, if this thing continues, we are going to be put out of business. And they literally led a riot. And the city was literally turned upside down to prevent the gospel from breaking into Ephesus. But the gospel did break into Ephesus, turned the city upside down. And what happened was a church was planted in the heart of this influential, very difficult, very reluctant, skeptical city. And the apostle Paul who went there, started this church, stayed there two years, and then got ready to leave. Now, here's what's interesting. It's for those of you who are on board with our mission, we would die to see something like that happen in Denver. We would, that's what we're giving our lives away to. And a lot of you, when you think about, if that happened here in the city, you think about the economic infrastructure of a city being turned upside down by the gospel. What sort of movement has to happen? You have to assume from there, things are going to go pretty well. But actually, I want you to look at Paul's farewell address. It's in Acts 20. We're going to actually bring it up on stage or bring it up on the screen. Paul says this, he's, he's talking to some of the leaders of the Ephesian church right before he's getting ready to leave. And he gives them a warning. He says this, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So don't you assume that the church would kind of take care of itself? I mean, it's, it's Paul, for goodness sake. And a gospel movement has turned this city upside down, and you just assume that this thing is going to be okay. I mean, it's Paul, for goodness sake. In the end, his farewell address says, you need to know if you don't think critically about advancing and protecting the mission here, if you don't protect this thing, this precious thing called the church, fierce wolves are going to come up, false teachers are going to come up, and they are going to teach false doctrine, false theology, and this church is going to be a mess. And that's exactly, exactly where we see Paul with Timothy here. Saying the reason I left you is that false teaching has arisen Wolves have come to the forefront, and I've left you here in this city in order that sound doctrine may be taught. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying it's really, really important that we understand what we believe and why we believe it. It's really, really important that everybody in the church is a sound theologian and that they give themselves to knowing this book, and most importantly, the one that this book is entirely about. In the end, it's really, really important. And you need to fight, fight, fight for sound doctrine and good theology and speaking correctly about who God is. Now, here's the thing. Is that in our city, and even for many of you who are visiting, I don't know a lot of you, you would really disagree with me there. I know in our city, at least, I have conversations every week with people who say things like, you can't know who God is. 
He's not like something you can plug into the scientific method and know who God is. Well, I hear things all the time in conversations. People saying, it's okay for you to have some opinion about who God is. But once you cross that, that line into being dogmatic, and once you start saying that I'm right and you're wrong about who God is, you've become intolerant, you've become a jerk, you have become tremendously dangerous in this city. I hear that all the time. And here's the thing, Paul's saying, look, I know this isn't going to be culturally popular. I know this is going to upset some people, but there's right ways to think about God and there's wrong ways to think about God. And in the end, the most important thing is for you to offend other people before you offend God. I understand even up here, me saying this may be offensive, but in the end, the responsibility is to offend man before we offend God. What Paul's saying is, is there's a way to understand who God is and that God, the one who spoke reality into existence. Yes, it is difficult to comprehend who he is. It is difficult to wrap our minds around who he is. But God, in his grace, has revealed himself in such a way that we can speak intelligibly about who he is and who he is not. He has revealed himself in a man. And by his grace, he has revealed himself in a way that we can understand who he is because he's met us exactly where we're at. What better way to understand who God is than by God to meet us exactly on his terms and to become a man and to reveal exactly what humanity is meant to look like. And not just that, not just that, but to give us a book that is entirely about this man, the scriptures that is without error and that has proved itself over and over and over again to some of the greatest minds that human history has ever seen for 2,000 years. And yeah, I know that maybe you took a college class taught by a PhD guy who knows multiple languages. And yeah, I know, I mean, I minored in religious studies at a secular university and all the time I had guys, you know, who told me in the Hebrew, it meant something entirely different. And Jesus wasn't who he said he was. And enlightened people don't think that way anymore. I would just say, you need to be careful because for 2000 years, Christianity has proved itself to the greatest minds over and over and over and over again. And the reason that we're in this room is because of the legacy of those men and of those women. In the end, yes, it may be offensive. In the end, yes, it may upset some people. But if I'm going to be intellectually honest, this is where my mind leads me. It's to trust the scriptures and to believe the one that the scriptures are all about. Now, many of you in our church you grew up in more conservative environments and you're not going to think this is you. You're not gonna think you have danger. When you think of heretic, you think of somebody else. You think of outside these walls and not you. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying you need to be tremendously, tremendously careful because the first step to heresy is thinking that you'll never be a heretic. Just like the first step to divorce is thinking you'll never be a bad husband. And the first step to really jacking up your kids is just assuming that you'll be a really good parent. He's saying, if you just assume that you're always going to have sound theology and you're never going to be that person who's teaching heresy. Like, you're a fool and you're taking a very bad first step. He says you need to watch your life and you need to watch your doctrine closely. Very, very closely. And the day in and day out that you should be a person characterized by giving yourself to prayer and giving yourself to this book this is one of the reasons that for us as a church, we've talked several weeks as we go through First and Second Timothy about you joining us in that journey. Because what 
what Christianity is not ultimately about is you being a spectator coming once a week and listening to somebody talk to you about the Bible. We say this all the time. Christianity is not a spectator sport, okay? And so you are meant to not be a spectator, but a participant. And that's why we plead with you to give yourself regularly to knowing the scriptures, to giving yourself to praying and asking God to protect you from thinking wrongly about who he is and to thinking wrongly about who Jesus is and asking the Holy Spirit to give you wisdom and asking this book to be a lamp to your feet and a light to your path. And that you would just get to the point where on a daily basis, you would get up in the morning, you would get in the afternoon, whatever. You would give yourself to regularly knowing this book. Not because you have to, not because you get a gold star on your chart in heaven, because you are so enthralled with the man that this book is entirely about. And you want your life to be characterized by knowing and following him. It's like, why would I not want to know the scriptures that are entirely about him? Not just that, but, but here's the thing. This is why we as a church do what we do. We don't do a lot. I understand we don't have a big production. In the end, you came in. Here's what you just witnessed. We sang about the Bible. We're teaching the Bible. We're going to pray that the Bible is true, and then we're going to high-five and go home. Like, that's it. And then we'll have city groups throughout the week where we talk about applying the Bible to our lives. Like, that is the extent. And I understand it could be funnier. It could be more entertaining. It could build up your self-esteem more. If I showed a 10-minute video clip, and I did a stand-up comedy routine, and I told you you're all really good people, and then, like, I prayed for you guys, and we went home. In the end... In the end, that may entertain you, it may amuse you, but it will not sustain you, it, may not, it will not feed you, and it will not transform your life. It will not transform your life. This is why we're serious about knowing the Bible, because in the end, this book is the way we know who God is. This book is the key to maintaining good theology, and this book tells us about the one man who is capable and able of bringing the death, the dead to life and to transform lives. That's why we give ourselves a knowing this book. Now, here's the thing. Before you get excited and get on amazon.com and like order a bunch of theology books and start listening to sermons, here's what you need to know. This has been the most convicting part of this passage when I've been studying it this week is this. Is that having good theology is more than knowledge, okay? Having good theology is more than knowledge. Just, just look at what Paul says here, okay? Look at verse five. Verse five has become like one of my favorite, most convicting verses in the entire Bible. I would underline this or circle it or know this verse, verse five. The aim, <clears throat> the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, Timothy, you can lead people to memorize a bunch of passages. You can have people know the entire order of the books of the Bible. You can have people read thousand-page theology books. But they have mis- if they misunderstand that the entire point, that the aim of the charge is love, then you have failed. You have failed. What Paul is saying to us is you can know a ton about God and you can have a ton of Bible facts memorized and you can read a ton of theology books and you may be able to use great sophisticated theological jargon. But if it doesn't drive you to knowing Jesus, his love, and that transforms and permeates your life to the point that you are a person who lives a lifestyle characterized 
by the love and the generosity and the grace of Jesus, you've totally, totally missed the point. You've totally missed the point and it was all worthless. Here's what he says. He says, look at this. He says, verse six, certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. So he says this, if you miss the point that the aim of the charge is the love of Christ, then you get into vain discussions. All you do is have empty religious theological dialogues and it doesn't matter. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. He says, your church is full of people who know all this stuff about the Bible, but in the end, they're vain, they're jerks, they don't love people well, and they don't understand that the point is following and knowing Jesus. That's the point. That's the entire point. I know I'm saying the same thing over and over and over again, but it's that important because our churches, our seminaries, our theological landscape, evangelicalism is characterized by a ton of people who know a lot about Jesus, but they don't characterize the love of Jesus. And every single one of you could tell me about somebody like that. Every single one of you could tell me about that person, that pastor, that major evangelical figure, that parent, that relative who know a lot about religion. They knew a ton about religion. But if I asked you, was that person characterized by the love of Jesus? You'd be like, no, absolutely, absolutely not. Some people could probably say that about you as well before we get too cocky. Probably many of you can point to a certain person who's been a major hurdle to you following Jesus. And if they'd gotten out of the way a long time ago, it probably would've been a lot easier for you to be a Christian. Maybe some of you are still wrestling with people like that. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, if you're that person You've missed the entire point. The aim of the charge to know good theology is the love of Christ. And our churches is characterized over and over and over again by, by people who don't get it, I, I, me included. So here's the thing. This is tolerated in the church. It wouldn't be tolerated anywhere else, would it? Like if you missed the main point of your job, you would be fired, wouldn't you? Like I was thinking of Matt Metzger. Where's Matt? Where's Matt? Matt. Matt build, designs and builds bridges for a living. And as I was thinking about Matt this week, I was thinking to myself, like you have to have you know, a lot of intelligence, you have to be pretty articulate, you have to have an impressive resume, you have to probably have a good SAT score. I mean, you have to be pretty impressive to design and build bridges for a living, right? Amen, 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 yes. You have to design, you have to be pretty intelligent. Now imagine you got into a conversation with Matt. You're like, Matt, tell me a little bit about how you got your job and tell me about like what, what happened. He's like, yeah, I mean, man, like I worked really hard in high school. Like, I mean, I just studied a ton. And then I went to college. I mean, after just knocking the SAT out of the water, I, I mean, I got great, you know, almost a 4.0 GPA. And I mean, I just, I've just learned almost everything there is to know about designing and building bridges. There's just, there's just like one tiny little thing that it's kind of a weakness. Okay, well, like what, what is it? Well, of the bridges I build collapse. Like, that's the entire point. Build a bridge that gets me from point A to point B without the entire thing collapsing. I don't care what you know about bridge building. If you don't build a bridge that doesn't collapse, then you've missed the entire point. You're fired. And it's the exact same thing that Paul's saying in the scripture. He's saying, I don't care what you know. I don't care what books you've read. I don't care who you listen to. In the end, if you are not characterized by the love and the grace, a lifestyle that people look at you and you say, that's a man, that's a woman that reminds me of the person of Jesus Christ. You have failed and missed the entire point. 
You've missed the entire point. So here's the thing is, is probably everybody in this room needs to repent of that. Some of you have just read books about Jesus for the sake of being able to argue the position you've already come to better. And you need to repent because you're just being divisive. And some of you just read your Bible because you think that God will love you more because you did your quiet time in the morning. In the end, you're using your knowledge to justify you before God. The only thing that justifies you before God is Christ on the cross crucified dying on your behalf. You can't add to that. You need to repent of trying to take the place of Jesus and saving yourself. Some of you know a ton about the Bible. You know more than me. You know way more than me. You have verses memorized, but the reality is, is when people look at your lifestyle, you may preach sound doctrine with your mouth, but you preach heresy with your lifestyle. And you need to repent because you are a major hurdle to people coming to know, love, and follow Jesus. You don't need just to repent to God. You need to repent to the people around you. I'm not just pointing fingers. This is me. I mean, I just think about, especially when I first became a Christian when I was 18 and super zealous and super legalistic and super reactionary to the crazy lifestyle that I lived, like how theologically destructive I was. And I literally did have to go to my family and just say, I was a jerk that wasn't like Jesus. I'm really sorry. It was one of the best things I ever, ever did. It's one of the best things I ever did. Some of you just need to repent. You need to repent to God and you need to repent to other people around us. So the reality is, is often what a very skeptical world and what a very skeptical city finds so unbelievable about Christianity isn't so much the teaching of Jesus, isn't so much the claims of Jesus, but instead is the lifestyles of the followers of Jesus that makes the teachings of Jesus so unbelievable. Gandhi summarized this really well, didn't he? It's become like a quote that's always seen on the back of bumper stickers and now it's on the back of Subarus everywhere in Denver where it says like, I like your Christ, but I, didn't like, I don't like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And while that's on t-shirts and on bumper stickers now, it's kind of become cliche. I mean, it's, it's true. It's true. See, here's the thing. Paul is not just pushing us to advance and protect the mission of the church through accumulating a bunch of facts. It is so important for you to understand what you believe and why you believe it. It's so important. But if what you believe and why you believe it doesn't push you to a lifestyle of demonstrating and putting on display the grace and the love of Jesus to your neighbor's to your coworkers, to your family, then you've missed the entire point. That the point is that the aim of the charge is love. So in conclusion, here's the thing. Is some of you, every single one of you are gonna to fall to one side or the other. Some of you are gonna to fall to the side where you just say, it doesn't matter. Um, I just kind of believe what I wanna believe. I, I don't really need to have a quiet time. I don't need to go give myself to the scriptures. I mean, just, it's just kind of like me and God, and I just pray every once in a while. It's gonna, I would just say, you're just treading on dangerous ground because your emotions will lie to you, your feelings will lie to you, the culture will lie to you, but the word of God will not lie to you. It's without error. And it will give you a solid and intelligible testimony to the character and nature of God and how that should transform your life. And some of you are gonna fall to the other side and you're gonna be all about listening to the right guys and you're gonna be all about talking theology, but in the end, Here's the thing, 
is don't miss that the point is the love of Christ. Knowledge does puff up and it does lead to arrogance. You just need to be on guard that your knowledge doesn't lead you to not being like Jesus. So here's my plea. As we think about our legacy, as you think about your legacy, as we think about the mission of God going forward through our church and the city and going through you as individuals and your family, your place of work, wherever you go and whatever sphere of influence that God's entrusted you with, I would say this. You need to give your life to knowing this book. You need to give your life to knowing this book. You need to have a plan to know this book. That's one of the reasons that we're asking you to join along with us in studying this book. But more importantly, you need to give your life to knowing the one about whom this book is entirely about, okay? That's the entire point, to know the one that this book testifies to because he alone is sufficient to bring the death to life. He alone is sufficient to transform lives. He alone is the hope of our church, of our families, of our places of business, of the city, and of this world. That's why we want you to know this book. That's why we want to advance and protect the mission through maintaining good theology. And that's why we have a hope that the mission of God will go forward through our church in this city. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word um, that is accurate and without error. That's why we teach it. Um, there's no doubt that that's just true. It's transformed my life. It's transformed the lives of people in this room. And um, God, we're just so, so thankful. Lord, let us give our lives, not just in knowing, about, knowing a ton about you and being disciplined to know you day in and day out, but in, let us keep the, the end goal in mind that, that knowledge isn't enough and the responsibility is to put the grace of Christ on display to the city through our lifestyles. Lord, let the way we live reflect the way that we believe. And only your spirit can make that possible. And we just ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.